Truth Espresso, episode 222. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. Uh, This week, I'm just going to do a short little episode without my sweet, beautiful co-host and wife, Chelsea. And this is an episode where I was getting notes for another episode in my series on Was Jesus a Socialist? And I haven't done that in a few weeks. I'd like to get back to doing some Truth Espresso Express episodes. But in this episode, I would like to talk a little bit about covetousness and stealing. And I'd like to make the claim that nowadays too many Christians really support coveting and stealing, even if many of them are not aware of that fact. And so to get into that question, I'd like to get into the Ten Commandments and particularly the second table of the law. So the first table of the law are particularly the commandments related to God and family, worshiping only God himself, keeping the ordinances that God has given for the nation of Israel, the Sabbath, and we also have honoring your father and mother. But now the second table of the law particularly applies to man's relationship with man. So basically the horizontal society, not necessarily the vertical relationship with God, but the horizontal relationship that people have with each other in society and the second table of the law could really be the prescription for general equity. So what are these commandments? starting with the sixth commandment and going through the tenth commandment. So, the sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. So, do we have any questions about that? Most people would say, well, yeah, of course, murder is wrong. That's what this commandment is about. It's about murder. So, thou shalt not commit aggression against someone for some purpose other than, you know, so Genesis 9 verse 6, where it talks about whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God, he made him. So unless it's a capital punishment for a capital crime, such that the death penalty for murder, if someone is aggressing, initiating aggression against someone else, committing the murder, that is the violation of the sixth commandment. And most people, except for murderers, (laughs) would generally agree, thou shalt not kill applies to everyone across the board. Because I want to ask the question in light of these general equity commandments, the second table of the law, does this apply just to what we would regard as citizens, regular citizens of a country, or would we say that it applies differently 
to those who might find themselves in power, the government, elected offices. However, we have a government. Do these commandments apply differently to the regular average Joe versus the government? And most people would say, it doesn't matter if you are in public office, you are just as much obligated to obey the commandment, thou shalt not kill, as anyone else in the country. And you would be correct. God does not grant those in political power the ability to wield the sword against people who have not committed crimes, who are not worthy of capital punishment such that they have not committed aggression against other people themselves. So what about the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes, most people would understand that across the board, from the average Joe to the president or king of a country, you are not to commit adultery. Marriage is an institution that God set up in the Garden of Eden with Adam and as a mystery concerning Christ and the church. So marriage is a sacred institution that God has created and no human being has a right to be above it regardless of their position in society. And we see an example of that when John the Baptist preached to King Herod that he was committing adultery by marrying his uh, brother's wife. Basically, his uh, brother's wife left him because, you know, hey, who doesn't want to be the wife of the one in power? And King Herod liked that arrangement, and John the Baptist considered it adultery. And so, yes, it didn't matter if you were a king of a region or a country committing adultery is wrong. From the poor to the rich, from the average Joe to the government official, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, what about the eighth commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Yes, most people would understand that it's wrong to steal. Taking $20 out of someone's pocket, someone's wallet, would be wrong for anyone to do, regardless if they're the average Joe or some kind of politician you do not steal from another person. Ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. In other words, you are not to lie, you are not to deceive people. Now, I know some people might argue that there are some situations in which, you know, lying might at least be the lesser of the evils if it's intended to protect some people or say that Rahab lied by hiding the spies and so on. But we're not talking about that. Generally, if we're talking about the commandment, do not lie against your neighbor, you normally understand this for the sake of you're doing something to gain yourself. It's not some kind of situational ethics, but nevertheless, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Average Joe, politician, yes, we know politicians are liars today, but do we think that it's okay or does that reflect corruption? Most people would agree that lying is wrong across the board. There are no positions in which lying is acceptable. And now the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And now this particular commandment, 
<laughs> seems to be one of the most difficult ones to keep because it resides entirely in our mind. And why do I say that? Can someone commit an act of covetousness? Well, you could ascribe covetousness to outward acts, but we see that the eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. And the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. Since they're separate commandments, we recognize that coveting does not necessarily have to be done externally. Now, not everyone has the same talents or abilities or wealth, but according to the Bible, no one has a grant to covet. And why would people covet? Well, because they see things that their neighbor or someone else has that they want. They might be envious of someone else's higher status of living. They might be envious, as the Bible says, don't covet your neighbor's house. Well, what if your neighbor has a bigger, nicer house than you do? What if your neighbor can afford a bigger, nicer house? Well, there is no exception granted thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. You also don't covet your neighbor's wife. And some people might think, well, why is it that my neighbor or my friends get like a better, sweeter wife? Or, you know, why does my neighbor have a supermodel for a wife and I don't, or I can't even get a wife? And so, you know, I'll never get married. And why don't I have a right to a wife like my neighbors and stuff? So, yes. Many people, in fact, I'm sure everyone has struggled with covetousness. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, the greatest missionary who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7 verse 7, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. So the Apostle Paul recognizes that coveting is one of those things that, you know, you might outwardly look good and think that you are a law keeper, but even someone as educated, someone as pious as Paul was in the law, recognized that he was a sinner by reading the law. And it says, Thou shalt not covet. And Paul realizes, Yep, I've broken that a time or to, I still struggle with it. And Hebrews 13 verse 5, whoever wrote that, it says, let your conversation or your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So the writer to the Hebrews is telling his recipients, do not act in such a way that demonstrates covetousness, but be content with the things that you have. Covetousness is an inward thing, and so it behooves us as Christians to realize that it is always wrong to covet. And now, let me ask the question, especially geared toward the Christians. I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone who realizes who would raise his hand and say, yep, I struggle with covetousness. That's not what I want to talk about right now, at least in particular. But what I want to talk about is how we project a Christian vision onto the world. Of these commandments, what are the commandments that we might sometimes let slide a bit or make relative? 
what are ones that we might be tempted to make it not apply equally across the board, but kind of make some people more guilty of violating the command versus others, depending on their situation? So I said covetousness is one of those things that we all struggle with. And because of that, we might find ourselves justifying it. And then what does covetousness lead to? Well, it's the eighth commandment, stealing. So yes, we recognize that stealing is wrong, but we might find ourselves nuancing the commandment a little for the sake of respectable politics. Because this question about what commands might we find ourselves compromising the most is also a question of how do we let our politics sometimes interfere and determine how we interpret Scripture. So, as I said, the claim of this episode is that way too many Christians seem to support coveting and stealing, even if they may not realize that. And that is often due to politics, due to political views. So it's not the Bible in and of itself, but politics of the day that can influence even Christians such that they might diminish the importance of the commandments, thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal for the sake of political ideologies. We must recognize when we have a political ideology, and we must not allow ourselves to consider the ideology first without first considering the absolute truth of God's word. So when it comes to politics and any contemporary country, especially when we think of like the United States of America— in which I and many of, my, many of our listeners might find themselves residing, there are laws and there are ideologies concerning what laws we might need now to change society under the guise of morality. And so, when Christians talk about supporting the poor, taking care of the poor, do we find ourselves mixing political ideology with the simple commands from the Bible to open your hand wide to the poor, give and it shall be given to you, and things like that. Just because something is done under the guise of taking care of the poor doesn't mean that it is approved by God in his word. Just because some kind of scheme or some kind of law has as a result something given to the poor doesn't mean that it's something that Christians should get behind because we always have to ask ourselves, is it Christian to advocate doing wrong to accomplish right? Does the end justify the means? The Apostle Paul himself also recognized, as he had heard in Romans 3, 8, he says that some have interpreted them that Paul is saying, let us do evil that good may come. 
and he says of them, whose damnation is just. So people are accusing Paul because he's talking about the truth of God and grace and that the law itself doesn't save. And some people were accusing him of teaching the idea that it's okay to do evil, that good may come. And Paul is saying it is absolutely wrong to do evil, that good may come. So if that's wrong, then we have to ask ourselves, are we advocating things through politics such that it's doing evil that good may come? And so, those of you Christians, I would like this to be food for thought. If you think that we need some kind of what's called social welfare, let's look at things like social welfare programs that are sponsored and enforced by a government. Is that how Christianity is brought forth properly in society? Is that what Jesus would have us do? Is that what the Word of God teaches? for taking care of the poor. Can we take care of the poor in other ways? Well, let me ask this question for Christians. Is it ever a morally virtuous and Christian thing to support initiating violence or threatening violence on someone who has not committed a crime? Let me ask that question again. Is it ever a morally virtuous and Christian thing to support initiating violence or threatening violence on someone who has not committed a crime. In other words, should Christians be in favor of possibly inflicting coercion or violence on someone who has not committed violence himself? So someone who's working and earning a wage and taking care of his family, or whether we're talking about someone who's rich or poor, is it a Christian thing for someone to support himself or a third party, such as, hmm, let's see, a government agency, bureaucrats, or enforced by people with uniforms and guns to come in and initiate or, you know, that there's a law such that you do realize that someone would be threatened with or have violence against them potentially when they have not committed a crime, like according to the Word of God. So this question, I've crafted this question in particular to make us think about government policies and taxation in particular. Yes, I know the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13 to pay taxes. And of course, we could raise the question, well, what's the purpose of Paul saying that? Is it to say that any tax system itself is just, or is he talking about the testimony of Christians to pay taxes with their intent being to enforce the sword against people from for whom God has said that vengeance should be against them, you know, like murdering, things like that, where God in his law has recognized that this person has committed an actual crime and must have the sword against them as punishment, and therefore, theoretically, we should pay taxes even knowing that governments can be corrupt, but we do it out of our own testimony and we're doing it because we are intending for the purpose of that to be for God's prescription for law. 
And so taxes then, under God's law, would be for the purpose of carrying out punishments, vengeance against those who have committed crimes. And yes, in Romans 13, it doesn't say anything about you need to pay taxes because it is a good thing because it provides for the poor. Paul never says that. It's totally about God's function of enacting vengeance. Because he says in Romans chapter 12, do not avenge yourselves. And that provides the context for, you know, don't take it upon yourself to be a government unto yourself and act like you have the power of the sword of justice. God has set up rulers to be his ministers to use the sword of vengeance. So don't be revolutionaries in that way. And then be a testimony of paying taxes, regardless of whether the tax taxes themselves are being used justly. So yes, there's taxation and there is the emphasis that Christians should do their dues and pay their taxes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the system in which the taxes are set up is actually following God's law. So that out of the way, let's get back to the question, is it ever morally virtuous or a Christian thing to do? to support initiating violence or threatening violence on someone who has not committed a crime. Like, let's say that if it were up to Christians to manage a society, if we could somehow pretend that all the government systems were out of the way, if our understanding of God's commandments, think of like the general equity commandments, the second table of law, thou shall not kill through thou shall not covet, were the actual law of the land and regenerate Christians somehow had control of the society. Would we then, as Christians, set up something where we have people with guns threatening or initiating violence against someone because they didn't, say, pay a certain amount of their earnings for some kind of social program that the Bible itself doesn't justify? It doesn't say 20% or 30% of your income is justly prescribed by God himself, and that anything less than that must be exacted of you by coercion and violence. Is it Christian love to believe that we should initiate or support initiating violence against someone who has not committed violence? That is a question I really want Christians to think about when we're thinking about how do we act as Christians, teach what is Christian truth in the political sphere. Are you just watching? You grab the popcorn, plant the family on the couch, and flip on the TV. But have you left your worldview behind? Media comes in all forms, and all of it contains some level of indoctrination. Are You Just Watching? The Entertain Christian's Handbook to Consuming Media with Purpose is a guided journal with worldview-shaping info and lots of guided note pages to help you watch and discuss anything you put before your family's eyes. Purchase it now on Amazon.com. And don't just watch. Jesus talked a lot about caring for the poor, but I have looked through the scriptures, I've looked through the gospels, and I don't see anywhere where Jesus advocated for initiating violence, using some kind of coercive violence from a government that he wanted instituted 
set up to extract money from people to pay for the poor. He talked about you give to the poor, you give and it shall be given to him. Those who are hiring people be good when you pay them. And we have parables about that, but nothing in Jesus teaching has anything that can be properly construed to say we need to have some kind of government thing set up such that anyone who disagrees with it still has to be coerced to follow it with the threat of violence, such as guns and imprisonment. Threatening people with guns and imprisonment doesn't seem to be a very Christian thing to do to people who have not committed crimes. I was looking at an article in the Baptist Press. Uh, It's talking about a meeting from the Evangelical Theological Society. So this was a meeting that they had in 2012 that had over 2,000 Bible scholars. Now, there was a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary professor named Craig Mitchell who said, quote, The sin of covetousness all too often ends in the sin of stealing. Unquote. And I kind of made that argument there, and they're separate commands, but covetousness is the basis of stealing. He also said, quote, those who argue for class warfare call this stealing the redistribution of wealth. The most gentle way that this theft occurs is by taxation, unquote. And so, in other words, it is by the actually the sin of covetousness that somehow people think that it becomes a moral excuse to satisfy covetousness by arguing for class warfare, like trying to pit rich against poor when neither have committed crimes and steal from people to give to other people by means of the long arm of the law, the government. And he said the most gentle way to do is by taxation. So, yes, although actual violence may not be occurring, it's still the threat of that violence, the threat of if you don't comply, you will be arrested, you will be thrown in jail, you will be hauled into court, and so on. So that's why people are paying taxes that they're told to pay for certain programs. And Professor Mitchell here is saying that this is caused by the sin of covetousness and it leads to the sin of stealing. So he's equating, this seminary professor here is equating the idea of using taxes to redistribute wealth. He says that that's stealing and it's a form of satisfying covetousness and I would tend to agree with him. So if you don't agree with me at this point, Still, think about that question that I asked before. Is it a Christian thing, a morally virtuous and Christian thing to support, to advocate for initiating violence or threatening violence on someone who actually may disagree with your means and methods and who has not committed a crime? But you might say, well, there were welfare programs in the Bible in ancient Israel. You had gleaning laws. Well, okay, let's look at that. The gleaning laws don't support wealth redistribution, okay? The landowners would harvest their land, but they would leave the edges unharvested. And that was a command from God so that the poor may come and glean the edges of the land 
those who are in dire straits and need stuff, those poor who didn't own land, they can come and get their food by gleaning from the edges. Now, see, the poor still would have to work. They'd have to travel to land. They would have to do the work of harvesting because a landowner would often have employees or, as the Bible would call them, servants doing some of this work. He'd pay the servants to glean the food from the harvest. So this was work. (laughs) that servants would do, but the poor would also have to do this work too. They would come up, glean the edges so they would work, and that would be the source of food, kind of a source of payment in a way for the labor of gleaning (laughs) the edges of the land. So what about this? Mitchell also observed from this that there was no central government that would confiscate a portion of this harvest and redistribute it to the poor. So think about it. There was no tax system and wealth redistribution involved in the gleaning laws. There was no government showing up at a landowner's house and saying, you must gather and hand this over, and then we will bring it into some kind of redistribution area, and then we will distribute it to the poor, and and the poor just get to sit and collect because that's their dignity. That's what they're owed is to just receive this food. No, there was no tax on the landowners that said you must leave X percentage or X amount of food at the edges. No, (laughs) you know, it was really kind of up to the landowner to try to use the goodness of his heart in following this commandment to leave the edges there. But it wasn't you have produced this amount or you have earned this amount. Now you must owe a tax of whatever percent of what you've produced or earned. No, there was none of that. The gleaning laws weren't enforced via proportional tax. And also, keep this in mind, there was no police force in ancient Israel that would enforce this measure, these gleaning laws, with the threat of violence and incarcerate someone or throw them into prison (laughs) if they didn't cooperate according to a government evaluation of saying, well, you owe this amount. No, there wasn't that at all. Now, if the people knowingly didn't obey God's laws here, God didn't have a police force to enforce compliance. No, God would be patient and long-suffering, and as the nation would devolve into sin, then God would have enemies come and oppress them, kind of to teach them a lesson till they would turn around and repent, and then God would rescue them from their oppressors. But God himself did not institute a police force in Israel to enforce a perfect and proportional kind of compliance and there was no tax percentage or any of that. So you cannot possibly compare the gleaning laws in Israel with some kind of income tax scheme or whatever kind of scheme enforced with the threat of violence by armed goons with guns who could possibly go to your house and arrest you for not following something that you might not even agree is the moral solution to taking care of the poor. So yes, Christian, let me ask the question again. Do you support the initiation of violence as a Christian solution? 
as the implementation of God's morality. Would you say that this is a Christian law, a Christian measure, the way Christianity would propose something be done to initiate violence against those who might not agree with the way taking care of the poor would be set up? Do you believe that we should have laws, that it's a Christian way of implementing laws that would tax people a certain percentage of their income and enforce it by the initiation of violence against people who themselves have not committed violence? Now, let's look at Moses here. We want to see how God set up judges In Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law gave Moses a solution because Moses was getting overburdened as basically being the one connected with God, the judge over all Israel. So Moses' father-in-law gave Moses a solution to help with judicial governance. So in Exodus 18 verses 21 through 22, Moses' father-in-law told Moses, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. So one of the qualifications for setting up a judge to judge the people in matters is that it's someone who hates covetousness. Now, here's a question that someone might bring up in objection to say, okay, what you're saying is all good and well and stuff, but the reason we have things set up the way they are, the problem is that the church failed to take care of the poor, and because of that, the government stepped in to fill the void. Well, let's think about this. Let's think, for example, about health care. Well, hospitals, as we know them, were originally started by churches, and Christians with medical expertise often provided health care for free or very low cost. So it was really an act of charity and free labor or low cost labor that um, from the church, Christians set up hospitals. The idea of this kind of goodwill toward men health care was not something that was produced by secular society. But of course, you know, secular society often comes in to take over things that Christians set up and bring their own morality into it. And then government through social policies like the Great Society and War on Poverty took over and regulated hospitals. And now what do we see? Uh, healthcare costs are through the roof. And then now, you know, of course, we have progressive Christians who would advocate for so-called free health care. But when they say that, they're not talking about a return to the way things were when a lot of hospitals were basically uh, health care charity and people would do a lot of free labor and make it free of cost by putting in their own work, offering it out of their own altruism. No, what they mean by free health care is that, of course, they're supporting even more government involvement and more initiation of violence, (laughs) that the government should socialize or 
coerce society such that now, you know, trillions of dollars go from certain people that we will namelessly, facelessly call the rich. So trillions of dollars from all across society to go to bloated medical bureaucracies, medical institutions, lobbyists, and well-paid doctors, and all of this ultimately to hand the patient a bill of zero dollars, even though the patient has been taxed, you know, their share for uh, medical care uh, through this kind of free healthcare system. The bill for specific procedures ends up being zero dollars, but it's not really free. But this is what many progressives and and even progressive Christians, if they think that that is biblical morality, that's taking care of the poor, is that somehow we need to utterly socialize um, trillions of dollars and tax people <laughs> like crazy. This doesn't sound like anything I've ever read in the scriptures for Jesus saying, you know, open your hand wide to the poor, give and it shall be given to you. Do not oppress the poor. That's not what Jesus seems to be talking about. I talked about these uh, examples in Was Jesus a Socialist? So we have two examples where Jesus deals with someone who's rich and advocates that they give. So you have the rich young ruler who asked Jesus about inheriting eternal life. And one of the commandments Jesus mentioned was thou shalt not steal. Now, notice this was a rich young ruler. So Jesus could have been telling this person, one of the commands is thou shall not steal. Are you in any way involved in stealing? Has your wealth come about off the backs of other people by stealing from Now, the rich young ruler said that he's kept all the commands, but Jesus says, one thing you lack, give all that you have to the poor, come and follow me. Now, I'm not trying to push the point that he really did give get his wealth by stealing, but we do see that Jesus mentioned that command, thou shalt not steal. Also, the next chapter in Luke, when Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, told Jesus that he would give half of his goods to the poor and restore those whom he defrauded fourfold, Jesus praised him. And so these two examples that socialists often use for the idea that, oh, we should have people just give up all their wealth and redistribute in society to have more evenly distributed wealth. That's what Jesus was talking about. But no, Jesus said, thou shalt not steal to the rich young ruler. And Jesus commended Zacchaeus for giving to the poor and recognizing that he defrauded people. Both of these were rulers in some sense, the rich young ruler and also Zacchaeus was helping the Roman government as a tax collector. So let me just say that when the Bible talks about meeting the needs of the poor, it's always voluntary or voluntarily brought about, voluntarily enforced. If a scheme was a particular commandment, such as the gleaning laws, God himself enforced it. And he didn't always do it immediately. God was not biting his nails, making sure that no red cent that was ever owed, supposedly for charity, ever went missing like he needed compliance officers. He needed a police force to enforce it. No, 
God didn't always do it immediately. God himself enforced it with captivity and so on. But he didn't expect to set up a government that would have goons to initiate violence and force people to redistribute part of their earnings or a percentage of it into some kind of socialized pot. That was never the means in anywhere where the Bible advocated taking care of the poor And so once again, Christian, is it a Christian virtue? Is it something that a Christian would support to have a scheme whereby we would initiate violence, advocate throwing someone in prison just for not going along with a particular scheme that the Bible itself never sets up? The Bible never says, thou shalt owe 30% or whatever of your earned income to a federal government. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ, truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.org christianpodcastcommunity.org One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. But what about all the verses about oppressing the poor? Well, when we see in the Bible, when it talks about oppressing the poor, it doesn't mean just so-called, quote-unquote, oppressing them by just simply not giving enough charity to them. It means exploiting them through deceit. We have an example in Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. It says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. So here, the rich and particularly, you know, the condemnation would be that these rich people were those who were colluding with government, and we see that a lot today, and that they were abusing scales, trying to make sure that the poor ended up paying more for the things that they were selling by falsifying the balances. They were deceiving the poor. They weren't just withholding from the poor what a social justice warrior would say that you owe the poor for the sake of equity. No, they were deceiving and robbing the poor. Here's another example of thou shalt not steal (laughs) addressed where the Proverbs talks about having compassion on someone who steals. So what about those situations where someone steals out of desperation? So Proverbs 6 verses 30 through 31 says, men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. So he's talking about someone who's desperately poor and he steals out of desperation. Now, verse 31. 
But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. <laughs> that doesn't sound very nice by today's inclinations, but yes, if someone actually commits the act of stealing, realize that, okay, the owner has the discretion of whether this is stolen or he can convert it into a loan in a sense. So then the thief then repays his crimes by working and earning and repaying it back, repaying off this debt with extra. That's what the proverb says. And what does Jeremiah say in 22, 16 through 17 about the poor and how we handle them? It says, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. There's a lot about God pleading for the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. And this, of course, is addressed once again to the rich government, (laughs) the princes in Jeremiah here. And so shedding innocent blood By what mechanism can violence happen, as we would call it? When is someone justified for initiating, not initiating, but rendering violence to someone? Well, it's if that person has rendered violence to the innocent. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So, you know, initiating violence is only if someone has initiated violence himself. So setting up something whereby you enforce a scheme by which someone must give a certain percentage or whatever for some scheme of taking care of the poor that certain people concoct. Oh, maybe it's this percent. Maybe we should do this percent. Maybe we should raise it to this. Whatever we have it set up as, and they enforce it by initiating violence against someone who may not even agree with that, but just say, tough, this is the law. This is how we take care of the poor. It doesn't matter how much charity you give willingly for targeted causes of the poor, your neighbor around you. No matter what you do, you must owe this. Yeah, sure, that's a government, but is that what Christians believe should be the case? Do we support that as a moral way to handle things? The Apostle Paul has some questions that we could ask ourselves in Romans chapter 2. If we believe and teach, thou shalt not steal, we need to examine ourselves that we're not, in effect, teaching that stealing is okay by merely involving a third party. If we vote in favor of or in any way say that this is doing God's work <laughs> by having some kind of forced redistribution of wealth, we should ask ourselves what the Apostle Paul gives us to ask. Romans 2.21 Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? So stealing, if we really understand the commands to be absolute and across the board, we can't relativize them as I said in the beginning. But often Christians believe that we can get around covetousness and somehow we can get around stealing by relegating it to a third party called the government and we can give our thumbs up, we can give an okay, we can believe that the government is doing God's work by initiating violence. 
and thinking that this is a Christian program? Now, let's also think about how often when Christians dip their toes into this and they start to rationalize that it's really truly a Christian thing to support this, that we start to rationalize and relativize other commands. When we compromise on coveting and stealing for political ideology and not the clear understanding of the Bible, it's not just the 8th and 10th commandments that we can compromise or explain away. It ends up being all of them. Thou shalt not covet unless, you know, you're an oppressed person and the government gives you your cheese and that's not coveting, that's just your dignity. That's what you're owed. Thou shalt not steal. Well, you know, if you're the average Joe stealing from another average Joe, that's wrong. But you can support a third party stealing from one average Joe to give to another average Joe. And that's somehow charity or welfare. Okay, so we can compromise those. But when we really get into ideologies like that, we can start rationalizing. We can start compromising other commands. Think about it. Thou shalt not kill. Well, what do we see with the violence in the streets, the so-called mostly peaceful protests and whatnot? We end up seeing that people think what they're doing is moral. I wonder how many professed Christians are there, progressive Christians, who think that, well, you know, these are oppressed people. They have the right to just let out their anger on someone getting beaten up by police. And yes, things like that are wrong, but that doesn't give you the right to start destroying property and rioting and initiating violence on someone who's not guilty of a crime and consider it some kind of systemic justice. Thou shalt not kill. Well, unless you're doing it for the purpose of social justice or in response to people who are somehow privileged or, you know, maybe we can kill someone because he hasn't given his due. He's withholding his due. It's all justice. We can end up compromising. Thou shalt not kill and making it so it doesn't apply across the board because we apply it unequally to different social statuses or groups. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes, we can see that even be compromised because it's like, okay, well, if you're underprivileged, then we can break down the family. You don't have to be committed to a wife because, hey, some people have a, a better wife because they're more privileged. And so it's okay to commit adultery. It just demonstrates that you're a poor person, you know, in need of help and you're not really guilty of anything wrong. You're just enacting out your poverty. And if you had your poverty met, then maybe you would not commit adultery like you do. What about lying? Yeah, thou shalt not lie unless you're part of an oppressed minority. And therefore, maybe lying, being a pathological liar is what's necessary because of your plight. We can really see that if we take a political ideology that seems to allow for covetousness and stealing and initiating violence under the guise of Christian charity and redistribution of wealth and taking care of the poor, we can rationalize away all of God's commandments. We can make it so that they all apply unequally not across the board to people based on their social status or group and so on like that. 
So, lest I be misunderstood with all of this, what is the point of this episode? I am not in any way saying that Christians should stop paying taxes or start some kind of revolution or, you know, that somehow refusing to pay taxes and getting arrested for it is somehow standing up for God. I'm not saying that at all because, as I said before, Romans chapter 13, Christian, pay your taxes as a testimony, as a recognition that God set up ministers and that you Expect that you're doing it for the purpose of what God has intended for rulers to do. You do it out of testimony. But if someone were to ask you about your faith, if someone were to ask you about your politics as a Christian, you should be able to start with Christianity and politics such as they are should only come forth out of your faith your understanding of the Word of God. So, you know, if someone were to ask for politics, like, do you support taking care of the poor? A Christian should indeed say yes, but a Christian should should be able to explain and not advocate an initiation of violence under the guise of taking care of the poor. The Christian understanding of taking care of the poor, biblically speaking, is voluntary charity. So that's what we should be able to advocate and preach as a matter of Christianity. Because like I said, like I asked before, is it Christian virtue? Is it a Christian proposal to be in favor of initiating violence against someone for a scheme of taking care of the poor that people invent that's not prescribed in the Word of God as such and is not enforced in the way that the Bible prescribes for taking care of the poor to happen. The end does not justify the means, my friends, and Christians should not in any way believe that it does. And so I hope that these thoughts, you know, have caused you maybe, you know, if you think that it's an act of enforcing Christianity to believe in some kind of coercive scheme of wealth redistribution and charity, that maybe you'd reevaluate that, that that's not a Christian proposal and Christians should never be in favor of initiating or threatening to initiate violence against anyone who has not committed violence themselves and that charity, the Christian way, is always voluntary. Yes, pay your taxes, but do not agree with the idea. Do not pitch. Do not vote for laws that you know are in violation of God's word. Live as a Christian. Agree with the Bible. Interpret. Evaluate politics and everything in light of God's word. And do your part to live out, teach, and advocate for a society that really is according to God's word. Where Christians do not believe in violence and we believe in voluntary charity and that is how we take care of the poor. And do not advocate for violating thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. 
If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.